goes without saying that we're honored that you're watching our program once again, and we do hope and pray that you're telling your friends and your neighbors about it. We always encourage those in our television audience to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our worship hour, our Bible studies at 9.30, our worship hour at 10.30, and our evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m. We've been having some really great crowds lately. In fact, last Sunday set an all-time record for a Rainbow Drive, and everything is just going so wonderfully here, and everybody just loves one another, and the congregation seems to be growing, and we have marvelous elders, marvelous teachers, marvelous brethren. I just think Rainbow is a great, great place to worship, and if you're looking for a place to worship, then certainly we encourage you to come and to be with us and to see just exactly what we have to offer. I believe that we have marvelous, marvelous Christian people here, and the most important thing about our congregation is is that we have such wonderful peace. There's such great love among the brethren and such great respect and such compassion, and brethren here really try to help one another out and really do love one another. So we do encourage you to worship with us, and if you don't live anywhere near the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, and worship with the nearest congregation of the Church of Christ to you. I want you to open your Bibles now with me to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the 12th verse, 12th and 13th verses. That'll be our text for this morning. Apostle Paul, writing, For now when we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as I am known. And and now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. The greatest of these is love. It seems that in the 12th verse, Paul is talking... Like so many of us human beings sometimes uh, talk and sometimes ponder and wonder. It seems that he's confused about some of the problems of this life, some of the complexities of this life. And he points out that within his human, with his human mind and being limited as far as uh, his ability to understand was concerned, there were so many things about this life that were confusing. He was looking into a glass darkly. There would come a time when it would be like looking looking face to face, a time when God would give us the ability to understand. But right now, he had so many problems, and so many things were confusing to him, and there were so many complexities in life. And he said to try to figure all these things out is just like one looking into that dark glass and not being able to see the image of himself clearly. Now, what was bothering Paul on this occasion? Well, the Bible doesn't say So we don't know specifically what he was thinking about when he wrote, Now we look into a glass darkly. But it could be that Paul uh, maybe didn't understand all of the suffering that he had to go through as a Christian, or at least wondered why he had to go through this suffering as a Christian. When he was a Pharisee, he had the good life. He was a man of position, a man of importance, a man of stature, a man who was looked up to. Now when he became a New Testament Christian, just the opposite was true. In 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, beginning with the ninth verse, he said, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, and we are despised. Even of this present hour, we do both hunger and thirst, and have no certain dwelling place, laboring with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure it. Being defamed, we entreat it. We are made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things under this present day. Paul talked often about the suffering that he had to endure. In 2 Corinthians 11, chapter, beginning with the 24th verse, he said on five different occasions he was beaten with 40 lashes, save one. Thrice was he...
beaten with rods. Once was he beaten with stones. Twice was he shipwrecked. A day and a night he was in the deep. In peril from within and in peril from without. In peril from his countrymen. In peril from false brethren. He just lived a life in which he was almost constantly on the run from his enemies. Had great physical problems. In 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, around the ninth verse, he prayed on three different occasions. Three different times, I should say, for the Lord to relieve him of this thorn in the flesh, as he put it, this physical problem. And Jesus didn't relieve him said that my grace is sufficient for you, for when you're weak, then are you strong? So Paul possibly, as almost all of us human beings do, probably maybe was wondering why he had to suffer so much and why many people who seem to be so ungodly so often prosper so much. Maybe he was confused about his own weaknesses and his own shortcomings. You know, Paul strove very desperately to live the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 27, he said, I buffet my body daily lest I should preach unto others, and I myself become a castaway. Paul always recognized the possibility of him losing his faith and drifting from that faith and becoming a castaway, being no longer a part of the faith. So he was constantly buffeting his body, constantly striving to live his life in a manner that would be pleasing to God. But as desperately as he tried to live for the Lord, he had had many weaknesses, made many mistakes. Romans, the seventh chapter, the 24th verse, he said, The good that I would do, I don't do it. And the evil that I would not do, I do. Now, who's going to deliver me from this body of flesh, O wretched man that I am? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. For with the mind I do serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now, Paul wasn't saying, as you've already pointed out, that he went out and sinned with impunity. That he just went out and lived like the people in the world lived. There was a great change in his life when he became a New Testament Christian. Even as a Pharisee, he was a very moral person and a very upstanding person. When he became a New Testament Christian, he was even more moral. And he lived a great and wonderful life. But he had a tremendous problem with sin, just like we all have a problem with sin. The child of God has a problem with sin. He lives a different kind of a life. He doesn't sit in bar rooms. He doesn't tell the same kind of stories that other people tell. He doesn't use the same kind of language that other people use. He's different, but he still has a problem with sin because we all fall short of the goodness and glory of God. Not one that's righteous. No, not one. Well, maybe Paul was confused by his inability to overcome some of his weaknesses or some of the sins that perplexed or, or caused him problems. I don't know exactly what he was making reference to when he said, now we look into a glass darkly, but then face to face. I do know that he was saying there were many things about this life that we are not able to understand. And when God gives us the ability to understand, undoubtedly in eternity, when we then will be looking in that glass as, and seeing the image clearly, well, until that time, we're going to have to accept many, many things in this life on faith. He then goes on to say, now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, Paul had priorities. He said the most important thing in his life, the most important virtue for him to possess was love. He said faith and hope are great virtues that every child of God needs to uh, manifest in his life and need to be a part of his life. But love was even greater than faith and even greater than hope. You know, there are things in life, friends and brethren, that are more important than other things. If you were to ask me to list in sequence what I consider to be the most four, four most important things in our life and the order of their importance. Number one, I'd say the most important thing in our life is God, Jesus Christ. Matthew 6 and 33, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I want you to understand the context that Jesus uttered those words of Matthew 6 and 33. Beginning with the 25th verse, he said, 
Why take ye thought for your life, what ye shall put, what ye shall put on? Put on. Behold the fowl in the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor they gather into their barns. But your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not of much more value than they? And which of you, by taking thought, can add but one cubit to your stature? Behold the lilies in the field, and how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory hath not been arrayed like one of these. If God therefore so clothes the grass in the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more shall he clothe ye, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought for your life which ye shall eat or which ye shall drink, nor for your body which ye shall put on. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, and for after these things do the Gentiles seek. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Jesus says the most important thing on the face of this earth for us to do is to seek God and his righteousness. Now why? Well, friends and brethren, if we don't have a right relationship with the Lord, if we don't wind up in heaven, nothing else on the face of this earth matters. You can be the most successful man, the most successful woman who ever lived in this world. But if you lose your soul, what difference is it going to make? What is it going to matter? Jesus asked that rhetorical question in Matthew 16 and 26. What doth it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Therefore, the most important thing in this world is our relationship with the Lord. You could become a millionaire 50 times over. But if you lose your soul, one second after you're dead, it won't matter one iota that you were a millionaire a thousand times over. You could be the poorest pauper who ever lived. And if you wind up in heaven, one second after you leave this world, it isn't going to matter that you were a poor pauper. What's going to matter is where you're going to spend eternity. Therefore, where we spend eternity in our relationship with God has to be the top, top priority of every right-thinking person on the face of this earth. In Matthew 10 and 37, Jesus said, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who is not willing to deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me is not worthy of me. So God and Christ and our relationship with the Lord and our salvation has to be the top priority in our life. Number two, to all married people, the top priority in their lives should be their husband or their wife. Paul says in Colossians 3 and 18, Wives, submit yourself unto your husbands, for this is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. The most important person on the face of the earth to every husband and every wife should be their wife or their husband. More important than their children, more important than their parents, more important than anything else in this life with the exception of, of the Lord himself. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, beginning with the fourth verse, Jesus said, Have ye not read that he which made them in the beginning made them both male and female? And for this cause ought a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, for they are no longer twain but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus says that when you enter into that relationship, you leave your father and your mother. And you cleave to your husband or your wife. So your husband and wife becomes the most important thing for you in this world, second only to Jesus. Now what about the married couple that puts God first in their lives and each other second? Do you think that marriage is going to end in a divorce? Do you think there would be any possibility of that marriage ending in a divorce? Anytime you see a divorce in this world, and especially among people who claim to be followers of the Lord, you could mark it down. Number one, they did not put Jesus first in their lives. Number two, they did not put each other second in their lives. Any husband and any wife who's putting God first, Christ first, their salvation first, and then their mate second, there is not going to be a divorce in that family. 
That couple is going to work out their problems. That couple is going to do whatever is necessary to make their marriage be what God would have it to be. Just like anything else in life, friends and brethren, a good marriage requires hard work. The only difference in most instances between the good marriage and the bad marriage is that the people in the good marriage are willing to work at it, willing to forgive one another, willing to overcome their problems, willing to try to understand one another, and the people in the bad marriage don't do that. They have no consideration for one another. They're not giving each other the place in their lives that God expects a husband and a wife to give one another. So secondly, only to our relationship with God and importance, as far as I'm concerned, is our husband or our wife. Third, our children. Proverbs 22 and 6 and that general rule. You understand a proverb is a general rule. That means that normally the proverb is true. Normally the general rule holds true. But there are exceptions to general rules. In Proverbs 22 and 6, the writer says, Bring up your child in the way he shall go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now that admonition, friends and brethren, is to the parents. And in Ephesians 6 and 4, Paul says, Fathers, and obviously including mothers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The third most important people on the face of this earth, the third most important priority in our lives should be our children and bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, I want to draw to your attention the fact that Solomon did not tell the church. The church wasn't in existence then, the New Testament church, but didn't even tell the church at that time, the religion at that time, to bring up the children nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Paul in the Christian dispensation didn't tell the church to bring the children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He told fathers, you bring up your children nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Solomon is writing to parents, bring them up in the ways they shall go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Too often, friends and brethren, we confuse the church and the home. Now, the church and the home are to complement one another. The church is the place where we come to worship God in spirit and in truth, where we come to learn more about God. The home, friends and brethren, is where we bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Have you ever heard uh, Christian say when their child goes astray, well, I don't know what happened to the church. I don't know whether well, we brought him to church all the time and he still went astray. Well, now you might bring him to church all the time. But if you're not bringing him up in the home in the way that the Lord would have you to bring him up, bringing him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, taking him to church or bringing him to church, which is such an important part of bringing that child up right in the right way, but that in and of itself is not going to necessarily mean that that child is going to turn out to be what he should be. Parents have got to take some time for their children. We live in an age in which most families, both parents work, the husband and the wife. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for a wife to work. I realize that in this present society, in many instances, it's almost necessary for her to work in order for that family to survive, in order for that family to sustain itself and get a home and the things in this life that we all consider to be very important. But if we don't understand that by the woman going to work, it has caused great problems in the home and has contributed to the demise of many homes, I don't think we're even being honest. Somehow, with our mothers going to work today, those mothers and those fathers still have to figure out a way to spend some time with their children. You can go to work and make a considerable amount of money and you can buy your children a lot of trinkets. You can give them all kinds of Christmas presents. You can get them ten Easter baskets. But that isn't what your child needs. I love the sign that we've got up on our marquee this week. The child who wants for nothing grows up wanting everything. 
You see, you can give your child the trinkets and the material goods of this life until we're, they can become almost meaningless to him. And he keeps looking for more and wanting more in order to find some form of happiness. What your child needs a million times more than the trinkets that you can purchase for him is your love, your time, your concern, your understanding. I read somewhere where the average mother and father give their children, now hear this, 37 seconds a day in undivided attention. Now think of that. At a time when children are watching television three and four hours a night, at a time when they're exposed to the ways of the world constantly in their schoolroom, drugs and what have you, where they're attending school, at a time when they so desperately need the counsel of their parents, when they so desperately need the advice of their parents, when they so desperately need the understanding of their parents, the compassion of their parents, their parents are giving the children, in the average case, 30 seconds, 37 seconds a day of undivided attention. Is it any wonder that our children are so confused? Is it any wonder that our children have so many problems? Is it any wonder that so many children are forsaking religion and so many young people are going in directions that all of us recognize to be wrong? Mothers and dad, give your children some, some of your time. Sit down and read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Make certain you have at least one family meal a day when everybody in that family is together for that meal. Take time to listen to one another's problems. Take time to carry on a conversation. Shut off the television set once in a while and get together as a family and talk about each other's problems and let each other know how much you love one another and how concerned you are about one another. Parents who do not have any time for the children, parents who are out working 13 and 14 hours a day making a living for their children have forgotten that they also need to make a life for their children. And the attention and the time that you give your children is what's more important than anything else in the bringing up of those children, the raising of those children. If you don't give them the proper attention, don't give them the proper time, don't give them the proper affection, don't show them the proper love, chances of your children turning out the way you want them to turn out are going to be extremely limited, if not infinitesimal. Fourth in our list of priorities, I believe, should be our vocations. A verse of scripture that's often overlooked is in 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter, the tenth verse. The Apostle Paul said, if a man won't work, neither should he eat. Often, I'm not talking about rarely, I'm talking about relatively often, young, strong, healthy men will come into my office asking for a handout, wanting the church to give them a handout. Now, I realize as well as anyone that there are extenuating circumstances. And I realize that in some instances, men are out of work through no fault of their own. And I realize that in other instances, other instances that they may have health problems. So I realize that everybody that comes into the office and asking for a handout isn't necessarily uh, being a parasite. Uh, they're probably in a situation that they have very little control over. But on the other hand, I'm convinced that the majority of people that are coming into church buildings, these young, strong, healthy young men asking for handouts, are simply too lazy to work. I just get a strong feeling that they just want to live their lives by through handouts, by being by begging and by having people give whatever they'll give to them. Now how sad that is. Paul says a man won't work, neither should he eat. We need to understand that the Bible teaches us that we are to earn our living through a day's labor and through making an effort to earn that living. I think that there's two things in our society that have really encouraged a lot of uh, people to expect others to take care of them in this life and not earn their living through the sweat of their brow. Number one is our welfare system. 
It would seem to me that there's a better way to handle the situation in the welfare system. Some way, we ought to give people the tools to do the work, the opportunity to do the work, give them a job of some kind and say, now here it is. You do this job and earn your living and you'll, and you'll be able to put food on your table and pay your bills and provide a place for yourself to live. That would instill in people respect. It would instill in people some initiative. But when people just sit back on the welfare system and draw welfare checks generation after generation, we're almost, in many instances, bringing children up to be parasites, bringing them up to expect others to take care of them. I think that that's not contributed in a positive way to our society. Number two, the unions. Now, I'm not here to condemn anybody in the unions or to condemn the unions totally and completely. I worked in a shop for 20 years, was a member of a union for many, many years. I know that the union has done much good, and I know that the unions, when they, at least when they started, were very much needed. But on the other hand, I believe they've gone too far now. And many instances, and I'm not talking from hearsay because I worked in a shop, know exactly what goes on and what takes place. Many instances, unions are protecting men who should not be protected. And men are hiding behind the union and not doing a day's work. Many men are just idling away their day in, the, in their place of employment because the union protects them and they know that the company can't uh, dismiss them. And so they hide behind the protection of the union and they become the kind of men that instead of going into their place of employment, given an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, they go into that place of employment seeing how little they can do. They want that full day's pay, but they want to do as little work as is possible. Little work, that, as little work as it takes for them to get by. And I think that's contributed, friends and brethren, to... Not to necessarily the demise of our society, but it's contributed to put an America in a situation where we don't compete with foreign countries. Because in many foreign countries, such as Japan, people have honor and respect and take pride in their work, do a day's work for a day's pay, and are turning out a better product than we are in this country. Somehow we've got to reinstill in our people the pride of a good and honest day's work and doing their job to the very best of their ability. But anyway, we've got far too many people in this country who are very capable of working and refuse to work. Young couples before they marriage, before they enter into the marriage relationship, they should make absolutely certain that they have an adequate enough income that they're going to be able to take care of themselves. I'll see young couples go enter into the marriage situation. They have no visible means of support. They wind up depending on mom and dad to support them. It creates a tremendous problem, creates tremendous difficulties. And the marriage has two strikes against it before they even get started. And the next thing you know, they're in the divorce courts. Make certain that you have an adequate income. Make certain that you have a job. And all you young men out there, learn a trade of some kind. Show some some uh, initiative. Try to learn something that will help you go through life and will cause you to be able to work and earn your living and have self-respect and the respect of others. People who don't work, Paul says now, people who refuse to work and are capable of working, they ought not to eat. Therefore, our vocation should be extremely important to us, and we should make every effort to earn our living in the manner that the Bible teaches us to earn it, to support our families in the manner that the Bible teaches us to support our families. Now, those, in my opinion, are the four most important virtues in our lives, most important things in our lives in the sequence that I've listed them. Number one, God. Number two, our mates. Number three, our children. Number four, our vocation. But now, Paul, in his words to us in this lesson in our text for this morning. He says, Now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. First of all, he says, he talks about faith. Faith is one of the characteristics, friends and brethren, that distinguishes us human beings from the animal kingdom. See, we have 
faith in something. Every human being, now I want you to think of this, every rational human being on the face of this earth, every accountable human being on the face of this earth has faith in something. Atheist has his faith in blind chance. The communist has his faith in a system of government. Uh, uh, some religions put their faith in reincarnation, the idea that they're going to be born again, come back uh, either as another uh, uh, species or as uh, another human being on this earth after we leave this particular world. The people in the Oriental countries, many of them, their faith is in Confucius. Everybody puts their faith in something or someone. That's one of that's part of the human species that's so natural. We have to believe in something. We have to put our faith in something. Well, now the child of God, friends and brethren, his faith is in the teachings of this book, the God of this book, and the Christ of this book. Paul says in Romans 10 and 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The child of God puts his faith in that omnipotent, omniscient God who could simply speak this universe into existence. That God who's all-powerful, that God who's totally unlimited, that God who is omnipresent, that God who can do anything that he chooses to do any way that he wants to do it. Our faith is in that God, and our faith is in Jesus Christ, his Son, who came into the world and paid the price for sin, died for you and for me, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Number two, Paul talks about hope. That's another one of the distinguishing characteristics between a human being and an animal. We human beings have hope. A person is ill, he hopes that he's going to get well. A person makes an investment, he hopes that that investment will return to him a profit. Whatever we do in life, almost everything we're involved in, we have great hope. We hope that our marriage will be the very best marriage that it can be. We hope our children will be the best children that they can be and grow up to be the best adults that they can be. Hope is one of those ingredients that every human being has. It's a part of the life of every human being. We all have hope for things on this earth. All have hope that things are going to be better on this earth. But the Christian, friends and brethren, has a hope that's greater than any other hope on the face of this earth. He has the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the worlds began. And because we've run out of time now, Paul says, third, but most important of all, is love. Love is the most important virtue of all. Why? Well, if you love God, you're going to obey God. Jesus says in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we love our fellow man, we're going to serve our Lord. For Jesus says, whatsoever you do to one of these, at least to my little ones, you do it also unto me. Love, friends and brethren, will be the characteristic that will motivate us to live closer to the Lord than anything else of which you can think. It will cause us to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. It will cause us to live our lives in such a manner that the light of Jesus Christ will shine through us. And people will know that we're followers of the Son of God who say the Savior of this world. Love is the most important virtue of all. And I pray that you love the Lord enough that you'll obey Him this morning in baptism. If you've never done that, be baptized into Him for the mission of your sins, where you can appropriate His blood to your life. If you're a delinquent Christian, my prayer is that you'll come back to the Lord this morning where He, where he and receive His forgiveness. Repent of that delinquency and let the Lord take you back into His arms forgive you of your sins, and let those sins be blotted from the memory of our Lord. Hebrews 8 and 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and remember their iniquities no more. So whatever your needs might be this morning, I hope you've got your priorities right. I hope that you've got your priorities listed the way Paul had his listed when it comes to those things that are spiritual, that you have the right kind of faith, you have the right kind of hope, and then more important than anything, you have the kind of 
love that the Bible teaches is so important for every person on the face of this earth to have. May God bless each and every one of you. Thank you so much for watching the program. Tell your friends and neighbors about it and hope to see you at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ this morning. 9.30 for Bible study, 10.30 for worship hour. God bless each.